If you would, go ahead now and let's open up our Bibles to uh, the book of Romans, in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning we are continuing our verse-by-verse study of the great eight. And I would like us to begin by reading in verse 12. Uh, Verse 12, and we'll read down to verse 17. Here's what we read. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him order that we may also be glorified with him. Allow me to make two comments about this message before we jump in. Uh, First, this is a forest sermon. Uh, You've heard people speak of not missing the forest for the trees. Um, The forest is the big picture. The trees are the individual parts that make up the big picture. My goal this morning is for this to be a forest sermon. I want us to see the main point that Paul is making in verses 14 through 17. I want you to feel the weight of verses 14 through 17. I want you to be encouraged by verses 14 through 17. Now, the particulars of verses 14 through 17 are great. Uh, We're going to spend several messages looking at the individual trees of this forest. Let me tell you where we're going uh, over the next sermons in Romans 8. We're going to look at the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the doctrine of adoption. We're going to look at what it means that God is our Father. We're going to look at what it means that we are God's children We're going to see the source of true Christian assurance and how you and I can have assurance concerning our own salvation. We're going to think about what it means to be an heir of God, what it means to be a fellow heir with Christ, and we're going to consider what it means to suffer with Christ that we might be glorified with Him. Now those are the particulars of this passage. Those are the the individual trees, and, and to rush by them would be a disservice to you. Because the glory of those truths can't be seen with an aerial view. You have to get on the ground. You have to to look at them. You have to study them and touch them and see them for yourself. And so that will be upcoming messages. But there is a glory to be seen by flying overhead. And it is important that we not miss the forest for the trees. Even if the trees are glorious, we don't want to miss the forest. And so that's what this sermon is about. Second, I want to say up front 
something that is directed towards anybody in this room who might be an unbeliever. And I want to acknowledge up front that this passage is a passage about a distinctly Christian reality. This passage is about offering encouragement to Christians as they battle their sin. And so if you're here and you're an unbeliever, this is a battle that you're not really a part of. You're sitting on the sidelines and therefore you're going to miss a lot of the glory of these verses because you're not going to understand what the fuss is all about. It is only those who have come to see their sin who hate their sin and are seeking to follow Christ, they are the ones who will really grasp the great help that these verses bring. And so my prayer for any unbelievers in this room this morning is this. I pray that the Spirit will cause you to sense as you hear this sermon that you are on the outside looking in. And I pray that God will give you a desire to become one of his sons or daughters. I pray that you would have a desire welling up in your heart to be an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. And so I pray that God will make that happen in this message. Okay, so we're moving from verse 13 where we spent many weeks now to verse 14. And we need to begin by seeing the connection between verses 13 and 14. In the ESV, the connection is translated as the word for. Do you see that? Uh, The beginning of verse 14, for. Um, That shows that there is a connection between these two two verses. Uh, Verses 13 and 14 are not isolated statements. Rather, verse 14 supports verse 13. Uh, Verse 14 explains... How verse 13 can be true. Uh, The word for here functions like the word because. In fact, listen, let me read verses 13 and 14 again and see if you can make the connection of how verse 14 supports verse 13. Listen again, see if you hear it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die... But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For, or because, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Once more, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All right, so how does verse 14 support verse 13? Well, it only works if you recognize two assumptions in Paul's minds. This is two points that Paul doesn't say because he doesn't think he needs to say it, and he doesn't need to say it, but I'm going to say it so that I make sure we all see it. Um, Here are Paul's two assumptions. Number one, sin killers are spirit-led. Sin killers are spirit-led. Or to use Paul's language, those people who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, they are spirit-led people. You don't kill sin without the leadership of the Spirit. You don't put to death the evil desires within you unless the Spirit of God is at work within you to make it happen. Those who are being led by the flesh are 
will never put to death the flesh. Only those who are under the influence of the Spirit, those being led by the Spirit, will put the flesh to death. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Assumption number two. The sons of God are going to live forever. The sons of God are going to live forever. Ladies, it is perfectly appropriate, as Paul uses the language of sons, to think sons and daughters. Um, We are sons, and in your case, daughters of God. But here's the reality of God's children. He blesses us with eternal life. God does not send his children to hell. God blesses his children with heaven. Okay, So if you understand those two assumptions, now we, I can put before you the logical argument, and Paul is a very logical man, here's the logical argument he's making in verses 13 and 14. Proposition 1, sin killers, people who are putting death to deeds of the body by the Spirit, sin killers are Spirit-led. Proposition 2, all who are Spirit-led are sons of God. Proposition three, the sons of God live forever. Conclusion, if you by the spirit of God of killing sins in your life, then you are spirit led. You are sons and daughters of God and you will live forever. Now, I know that was a lot of heady work. So let me just say it again so you can hear the conclusion. Even if you didn't get how we got there, just hear the conclusion. If you by the spirit are killing sin in your life, then you are a son or daughter of God and you will live forever. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, so verse 14 says that verse 13 must be true. Verse 13 has to be true because... Well, those who kill sins are sons of God, and the sons of God receive eternal life. So what this means for us is this. If you are putting to death the deeds of the body, if you are actively putting to death immoral thoughts, immoral words, immoral deeds in your life, and if you're doing this by the Spirit, as we've been talking about in recent weeks, by prayer, by faith, by the Word of God, then you are being led by the Spirit. You are a son or daughter of God and you will have eternal life forever. Okay. Paul, why are you telling us this? What is the larger point that you are making? Well, you can see the larger point that Paul was making by putting verse 14 beside verse 17. Putting verse 14 beside verse 17. We could summarize verse 14 this way. If led than sons. Everybody say that. If led, then sons. If you are led by the Spirit of God, you are a child of God. If you are led by the Spirit of God, you are a child of God. That's verse 14. Now, verse 17, we could summarize this way. If sons, then heirs. Everybody say that. If sons, then heirs. Look at verse 17 with me. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So in verse 14, if led, then sons. Verse 17, if sons, then heirs. This is where Paul is getting you to. 
If you are killing sin in your life, then you are a child of God. And if you're a child of God, you are an heir of God. And what do heirs receive? An inheritance. There is a day coming, dear Christian, when you will enter fully into an inheritance. An inheritance of eternal life with God in a world of perfect peace. The fact that you are in the battle today by the Spirit working to kill your sin proves that you are His and that a day of peace is coming for you. Today you are in the midst of a struggle against pride and envy and lust and greed and sloth and all of these sins we've been talking about. But the very fact that you hate these sins the very fact that you are striving by the Spirit to kill these sins proves that you are one of God's and that there is a day coming when you will live in a world of perfect peace and perfect joy. The inheritance of holiness, the inheritance of happiness is coming your way. All of verses 14 through 17 are Paul leading us to verse 18. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Sometimes we read this verse and we think that the sufferings of this present time that he's speaking of here are are persecution or sickness or the loss of a job or the sins of others against you. And all of that can be included But primarily what Paul is talking about in the context is your experience in your war against sin. Paul is thinking here about your frustration, your agony, your moments of depression and anguish because you can't seem to get rid of this sin or you can't seem to get rid of that sin in your life and you're fighting and it won't go away and you can't kill it and sin is grieving your heart. Your own sin is before you and you want it gone. You know that your sin is harming you, harming others, harming the glory of God. It's causing you to suffer. You're trying to fight it and the fighting is hard. You're in the midst of the suffering in this battle against sin. But the fact that you're suffering in the battle today only proves that you're going to experience the wonders of heaven. And Paul says, what will be revealed to you there will make all of your suffering in the battle today seem insignificant in comparison. The prize set before us is so great that once we have achieved it, we will look back on all of our suffering in this life and think of it as a momentary ache, something short and mild, nothing to be compared with what we've received. In fact, if we fly our helicopter just a little bit higher above the forest of these verses, and if we take in everything from verse 11 to verse 18, we see that what Paul is giving us here is a hope sandwich. A hope sandwich. Uh, Hope in the Bible, remember, is not like a wish That is, it isn't like, I hope my team wins today, or I hope mom fixes my favorite meal for supper. That's not the way the Bible is using the word hope. Rather, in the Bible, hope is something that is promised to you, and you're waiting for it to come pass, to pass. 
Hope is living with the eager expectation of something that God has promised to you. In these verses, we have a hope sandwich. In verse 11, Paul reminds us that there is coming a day when these bodies of ours, with all of the problems they cause us, and with all of the aches and the pains and the diseases and the sickness and the suffering that these bodies cause us, verse 11 says there's coming a day when this body is going to be resurrected and it's going to be made perfect. There will be no more fight with the flesh. There is coming a day, dear Christian, when your body will be perfected, purified, and glorified. That's a slice of hope. That's slice number one. Okay? Then we have the meat of our sandwich in verses 12 and 13. And the meat of the sin, which is, you're not there yet, fight sin. (laughs) You're not there yet, keep fighting sin. Stay in the battle, right? Real Christians wage war against the deeds of the body. It's not a pleasant reality. This meat's a little bit hard to chew. But just as God hates all evil, so his people will hate evil. And that means we're going to be waging war against the evil in our lives. And we have to do that or we can't consider ourselves true Christians. And so that's the meat, verses 12 through 13. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He wants to remind us that even in the midst of this battle, we're to be fighting with joy. Even in the midst of this battle, we're to have the joy of the Lord as our strength. And so he follows the meat with a second slice of hope. And the bottom piece of bread is verses 17 through 18. 14, 15, 16 are glorious. They are glorious. And yet actually the all... 14, 15, 16 exist for Paul to logically get us to verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18 is the second slice of hope. And it's Paul drawing our attention again to the future, to the inheritance that is already ours, though we haven't yet entered into it. And he says that on that day, we will have a glory revealed to us that will make all our suffering pale in comparison. What is the point of this sandwich? It is to teach us how we are to wage war against our sin. We're to do so with joy. We are to live in this life and pursue holiness in this life and pursue obedience in this life in the full confidence of what God has promised to us. Don't let your battle with sin get you down, paralyze you, keep you from Christian service. You may have lost a battle today, but the victory is yours. It's guaranteed. Keep your eyes on what's ahead. Keep eyes on what's promised to you. Get up off the ground. And keep fighting because the spoils of war are going to be beyond your comprehension to grasp. And when you've entered into that inheritance, you're going to say, the fight was nothing compared to the prize. The suffering was nothing compared to the glory. That's the big picture. Allow me to spend the rest of the time applying it to our lives. Three points of application. Number one, set your mind and your hope on things to come. Both slices of the sandwich teach us that even as we live this life, we are to be energized, strengthened, sustained by looking forward to what God has promised. The Christian life is a forward-looking life. This is not some side truth of the scriptures. This is taught everywhere. 
This is part of the ABCs of Christianity. Christians live well today by eagerly anticipating what is coming to them tomorrow by grace. Jesus spoke this way all the time. He loved to talk about the rewards of heavens, of heaven. Uh, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus, really? That's blessed? That's blessing. I don't want to know what the curse is, right? Revile, persecute, suffering, that's blessed. Why? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. You see, looking forward to the promises of God changes the way we see what's happening around us today. Suddenly, even suffering becomes a positive thing when we believe the promises of God about our future. God's people who suffer much today for His sake will be exalted much tomorrow. Those who are brought to the lowest points in this life will be brought to the highest points in the next. Look forward to that day. Rejoice when you are persecuted. That's what the apostles did. We're told that they were beaten and thrown in prisons and they rejoiced and thanked God for the privilege of suffering for Christ's name. You see, their hope was set on the promises of God. They were forward-looking and it had shaped and affected their attitude and their hearts in their present circumstances. Think about the apostle Peter. He writes in 1 Peter to Christians who are already suffering. They are being shunned by their families. They're already having their jobs taken away from them because they dare to be Christians. Their neighbors, even their local governments, are treating them with suspicion. And Peter has to write them and say, guess what, folks? You haven't seen anything yet. The heat is about to get a whole lot worse. The persecution, the suffering is about to get a whole lot worse. A fresh wave of Roman persecution is about to begin. And guess what? Many of you are about to be in prison. Many of you are about to be slaughtered in the Roman Colosseums. Many of you are going to be made a spectacle of before the public. How does he help those Christians to stay faithful in the midst of the suffering they're about to experience? Well, you know the answer. He reminds them of their hope. He reminds them of the inheritance that is coming to them. He reminds them about the day that Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven to set all things right, and he's going to take them to himself. Read 1 Peter 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. It's hope. It's the promises of God about the future that he sets before these Christians to say, hold on in the midst of struggles and suffering and trials. You see, when it comes to our fight against sin, we are especially called to have one eye set on the eastern sky waiting for our Lord to appear. We are to remember that this battle, though it's hard, it is temporary and that glory is coming. At the end of Romans 7, we saw Paul opening up about his own struggle with sin. Paul was very honest with us about his own life. He said that he feels as if there's another law working within him. This law of sin commanding his flesh, leading him to do what he doesn't want to do. He says, I'm a torn man. I'm doing the things I don't want to do. I'm not doing the things that I want to do. He cries out in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. Have you ever been there? 
Have you ever found yourself crying out to God, oh, wretched man that I am? He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, here is Paul's hope. Here is why Paul is not paralyzed by his own sin and his own failures. He knows that deliverance is coming. He knows he's going to be delivered from this body of death. This body of death is going to one day be a transformed body. Paul's eyes went beyond his own circumstances in the moment. They looked beyond the horizon. They saw the future. They saw what God had promised, and it gave him the strength he needed to be faithful today. Abraham, same thing. He lived his whole life, the ups, the downs, slowly maturing in faith, learning more and more to look to the future. God had promised Abraham a better day, a better country that was coming, a kingdom of his descendants that would be vast and glorious, a a kingdom that could not be shaken. Listen to Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By what did Abraham obey? By faith. Faith in what? The promises of God. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place where he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. He lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to what God had promised him. Or maybe you want an even better role model. Consider our Lord Jesus himself. Why was Jesus able to remain pure and faithful and obedient in the midst of incredible trials? Do you remember that all of Jesus' friends deserted him at the last hour? Do you remember that not only did Peter hear the cock crow, but Jesus heard it too and he knew what it meant that he had just been betrayed. Imagine him hearing the crowds yelling, crucify him, crucify him, though he had done nothing but love these people, heal these people, teach these people. He was spat upon, he was scourged, he was put upon a cross, and even then he still loved God, and he loved these people. He loved his enemies. He cried out for God to forgive them. And we say, where does that kind of faithfulness come from? How was Jesus, a real man, able to remain so steadfast in the midst of such terrible suffering? Answer, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What helped Jesus to persevere in obedience at the hardest moment of his life? It was the joy that was set before him. There was the prize ahead. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation that would be his bride in the presence of his glorious Father forever. 
Jesus was looking to the future beyond the cross, to the tomb. I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it back up again. Church, our master has already blazed this trail for us. He knew the temptations that we know. He knew the battles. He knew the struggles. He knew the suffering. But he lived trusting the promises of God and he was pure. And that's how we can be pure as well. Trusting the promises. So I just ask you, do you think in terms of heaven? Do you live with one eye looking towards the eastern sky? Do you long for the day when Christ will be back and the race will be over, the battle done, and you get to enter glory? Will you be one of those waiting eagerly for Jesus to come back or will you be one that is caught unawares? Second application. Keep present sufferings in proper perspective. Keep present sufferings in proper perspective. When we see how Paul uses the power of hope to encourage us in our battle with sin, we see how important it is that we keep our present sufferings in proper perspective. If we only look at our sufferings, if we only look at our struggles or our temptations, they may appear gigantic to us. It is only when we see our struggles in light of God that we see them correctly. It is only when we see our struggles in light of eternity that we see them correctly. It is only when you see your tough circumstances, your pain, your suffering, your fight, only when you see that in light of Romans 8.18 that you see it correctly. Are you struggling with anger in your life? Does anger seem to be an enemy you can't defeat? Guess what? Anger is so much stronger with you than you. Anger could tear you to shreds. But anger is nothing compared to the power of your God. Moreover, your battle with anger is but for a short time. This life is but a vapor. You will soon be in heaven. The battle will soon be over. In fact, all of the agony, all of the frustration, all of the difficulty that you've had in your fight against anger is going to seem minuscule when you behold the glory of God for the first time. You will open up your eyes from that moment of death and you will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and your first thought will be, it was worth it. It was worth it. Maybe there is some temptation in your life that has you so defeated and down that you're just ready to give up. You just want to stop fighting altogether. Just give in. Thinking maybe I should just make peace with this sin and give up on this whole following Jesus thing. You're so tired. Dear friend, remember the prize. Remember what is coming. It is no small prize. God's people, all who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and therefore become sin killers, every one of them will receive the greatest gift of all. If you remain faithful to Jesus, if you remain 
on your feet, continuing to fight, you will get to see God. You will know God in ways you cannot yet fully comprehend. Moses, it was all he wanted. It was the cry of his heart. He stood on the mountain. God, this one thing I ask, show me your glory. And God said, Moses, you can't. I'll give you a glimpse. That strange passage about God revealing something of his backside to Moses. And even that was enough so that Moses' face shone when he came down the mountain and he had to wear a veil over his face so that people could even draw near to him. And even that was just from a tiny glimpse of the backside. Folks, what is your prize? Yes, seen granny in heaven. Not discounting that. But that's not the prize. The prize will be the moment you open your eyes and you see the glory of God. You'll see his very face. It will be worth it. I guarantee you that if you could interview every person in heaven today, if you could interview those who have already fought their fight, run their race, you would not find a single one who wouldn't testify to you that it was worth it. There is not one person in heaven now who says, when I was on earth, I wish I had just given in. I wish I had just given up on the Jesus thing and made peace with sin. No. The cloud of witnesses is crying out to you. The prize is so good. Nothing compares to knowing God, to seeing God, to being with God at His right hand or pleasures forevermore. They're crying out to you through the pages of the Scripture. Keep running. Keep fighting. It's worth it. Go. Don't give up. Don't give up. And dear friend, if we wanted to interview those people who did give up and did make peace with sin, where would we have to go? And doesn't that tell us everything we need to know? Where are those people who claim to be Christians but after a while proved themselves false because when the sun was high in the sky and the battle with sin got tough, they withered. Those people who gave in, who stopped fighting, who chose to leave the narrow path and to get on the wide and easy path. And the wide path is an easy path. The road to hell is easy. You want an easier life? You can have it. It just leads to hell. You say, I don't want to battle with sin anymore. I just want to give in. I just want to enjoy gluttony or lust or greed. I want to live for money. I want to live for entertainment. It's the easy way. And it takes you to hell. Keep your present sufferings in proper perspective. Your sufferings today simply do not compare with the glories ahead of you. You must believe that. You must keep on believing that. You must throw yourself on the mercy of Christ every day and keep fighting. And, of course, frustration and agony and wretchedness That's not the whole story of our lives today, is it? When you are believing God's promises, even today, you can have a deep-seated peace and joy as you fight. The Christian life is not all hunky-dory. There are times when the Christian life can be terrible, when you will experience terrible things for Christ's sake. And yet, even in the face of terrible things, when you believe the promises of God, you can have peace that passes understanding.
So our first application, set your mind and your hope on things to come. Number two, keep your sufferings in proper perspective. Number three, we'll close this way, and this is short. Let us help each other fulfill those first two points. Let us help each other fulfill those first two points. You see, in these two things especially, we really need one another. Because there are going to be times in my life when my mind is not going to be set on things to come. There are going to be times in my life when all I can see is my struggle and my battle and my suffering and my pain. And there are going to be times in my life when I am not keeping my suffering in in proper perspective and I'm going to be near despair. And I'm going to need you. I'm going to need somebody willing to come speak into my life with the truth of God's word and say, snap out of it, Justin. Let's see this rightly. And you're going to need that too. We're all prone to our pity parties. We're all prone to depression and despair. We need one another. I need you to come remind me that groaning and grumbling is no way for a child of God to act because we are heirs. We are not just sons and daughters of God. We are princes and princesses. We're going to reign with Christ. We are royalty. Don't forget it. You are heaven bound. There is an inheritance ahead. You are going to be with God. What are you grumbling about? Sure, the road's a little rocky. You're going to be crowned. We need Christian fellowship. True Christian fellowship is not about the fried chicken and the sweet tea, though we praise God for fried chicken and sweet tea. But that is not what true Christian fellowship is about. It's about encouraging and admonishing one another with God's truth. It's about speaking the truth in love because we really do love one another. It's it's saying I can't make it safely to heaven without your help and you can't make it safely to heaven without mine. We are gifts from Christ to one another to speak his word to each other in those moments when we know it most. Church, can you not testify to the power of a word in season? If you ever had a friend, a brother or sister in Christ speak a word in season to you that was exactly what you needed to hear from God in that moment. I have more on that point, but I think you get it. Let us love each other by helping each other look forward to the glory ahead. Let us help each other by helping each other keep our sufferings in proper perspective. Our problems are big compared to us, but they are tiny compared to the God who loves us and to the glory that he is soon to reveal to us. All of this is ours as a gift of grace given to us by our Savior, the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ. Let us praise our Savior for the glory that is ahead and trust Him on the journey to get there. Amen? Let's pray together.